When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. everybody uh jacob daniel here this is the daniel three podcast thanks for joining us episode uh 76 i think uh can't remember off the top of my head but i think that sounds about right um as always uh plug my uh sponsor for the show my good friend will bell and his uh rabbit eye blueberry wine uh if jesus was still walking the earth today and uh was gonna turn water into wine it'd be blueberry wine maybe i don't know i just like to say that <laughs> um as for stuff coming uh down the pipeline uh i don't really have let's see next week i'm going on sam Whiplinger's podcast uh the black flag podcast so uh that'll be a fun conversation i forget the topic he chose for us um i don't know it it, it was something christian uh libertarian related so definitely check out that out that'll be fun um other than that i don't have a lot of uh uh this is like the last episode i have in the works with a guest because my wife is expecting at any moment now so i'm trying to keep my schedule light i'll be putting out more of uh the sort of solo episodes that i've been doing um kind of doing going through the uh bible and uh little series i'm doing on austrian economics in the bible so i have that coming up the website is still down uh there was some kind of issue with my host and they basically lost the data and they're trying to recover it so you know that's a lot of fun stuff uh but you know we'll figure it out one way or the other um but that's all that i really got going on at the moment um so tonight's guest is uh carrie baldwin she is returning to the show for the third time i think um and uh you know with current events and stuff being what they were i thought this would be a 
perfect time to uh, bring Bear, uh, Carrie on to, you know, go a little bit deeper dive into uh, the subject of abortion, Roe versus Wade, all that stuff, um, because it's it's a very complicated issue. And uh, Carrie does a good job at uh, bringing some clarity to those topics. So with that said, uh, I'll bring Carrie up. Carrie, how are you doing tonight? I'm good, Jacob. How are you? Oh, I'm hanging in there. <laughs> uh, literally, literally, uh, you know, that, that uh, what are the Jesus take the wheel song from the nineties. It's just like, oh, no. that's my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know the feeling. Yep. So, but it's all, it's all good. You know, it's uh, just, uh, you know, when you're, uh, when you're at that, like, you know, it's what I think she's 39 weeks pregnant today. So and when you're in that, when you're in that, like, like crunch time, it's just like, and then it's like, I'm, I, I started a new job recently and now I work like an hour away from home. So every day is just like this, like, you know, the stress of work plus like my wife calls and I'm just like, okay, am I ready to <laughs> jump in the action, run into the car? What's going on? She's just like, oh no, I had a question. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> now what number is this? How many kids? This will be number four. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Very good. Yep. No, we're Very excited. Good. We have a, have another baby boy. We were hoping for another girl, but God decided it was uh, only, only one girl in the cards for us, unless we decide to have more kids, but. Yeah. My wife, my wife thinks that we're going to be done at four. Yeah, <laughs> it, I can understand. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Pregnancy. I mean, it, and you know, it relates to today's topic. But yeah, I mean, and I, I certainly understand pregnancy. It's it's not a walk in the park. It is yeah. certainly a lot of a yeah. lot of a lot of work and and uh, and toll that it takes on a on a, a woman's body. But mm-hmm. um, but yeah, we'll get we'll get into that as the as the show continues. So uh, Carrie, this is your third time on my show, but um, maybe just I don't know, give another uh, introduction just in case there's people who are maybe not as familiar with you and and your background and just tell everyone what it is you do. Sure. So um, I'm an independent researcher and actually co-author now of the book, Faith Seeking Freedom, Libertarian Christian Answers to to Tough Questions. I've got my own podcast called Dare to Think, and I'm also a Socratic coach. I teach um, online courses in critical thinking. So I do all of that at mereliberty.com. That's my website. And um, really a, a large uh, a, a large focus of my work uh, or my research is towards a libertarian theory of abortion. Um, and I describe it that way because I really do believe that libertarianism only supports a pro-life position. And that's based on um, my explanation of fetal self-ownership. Um, I'm actually working on um, a formal presentation um that I intend to submit to peer review, uh, hopefully by the fall. So I'm working on that right now and actually formalizing all of this stuff into a coherent argument. So that's about it. Sorry, by uh, uh, Google Chrome just closed itself and I had to come back in anyway. So Oh, weird. Okay. Yeah. I was like, oh, I hope it's still going on, but I, I guess it did. So, all right, well. Uh, hopefully that does not happen again. Um, but yeah, I already know uh, know you pretty well, so it's okay that I missed that part. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, boy. All right. So, um, and then I don't know if you mentioned uh, in your little intro, because I, I missed pretty much all of it, but you you mentioned the debate you did with, with Walter Block. Um, I did not. Okay. Uh, yeah. That was, that was the first time I had, I had uh, heard of you. 
um, mm-hmm. was that debate, which pertains to tonight's topic. Um, yep. But that was uh, that was like what, late, late 2019. I think? Yeah, it was December, December 2019, right before right before, before the COVID world ended. And, yeah, right before the world <laughs> ended. That's right. <laughs> well, it's funny is I went back. So like for prep, I've been going back and kind of watching some of your old stuff. And mm-hmm. I went back and watched that debate. And I remember Gene was uh, plugging a debate then that actually didn't actually happen until like a few months ago oh, and it, but like he was really? plugging, yeah because i guess they had to reschedule because they yeah. couldn't meet for over a year but it was mm-hmm. funny because like, i had this moment like wait no that debate just happened when did this debate happen i was like no that happened 2019 i was like <laughs> it was just i forget it oh, was some, that's so funny it was between scott horton and uh bill crystal that that's was the one right yeah he yes. was plugging that in the de- the like at the end of of your debate with walter and that didn't happen till like I think like February of this year or something. So yeah, it was crazy. (laughs) Well, I have to, I have to really give a shout out to uh, Gene Epstein from the Soho forum and even Walter, because um, that debate really um, gave me a a platform for, for sharing these ideas, which have resonated well with um, honestly, not, not just with pro-life libertarians, but some people who I would say, uh, leaned pro-choice as well. That's um, I frequently get messages from both sides uh, telling me how much they appreciate the the debate. So, yeah, yeah, that's 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 good. Yeah, you you um maybe so I guess the way we can start out maybe um if you could give I guess like a five to ten minute overview of sort of like your argument, uh, your pro-life argument from a uh, I guess, libertarian perspective. And then we can kind of get more into details and specific points and questions and stuff after that. Sure. Well, I think um, this really started because I, I had a lot of criticism, not just for the pro-choice side, but for the pro-life side as well, the, the what I call the conventional debate. Um, and, you know, it just, we get very you know, knee deep in the weeds when it comes to this debate. And I wanted to bring some clarity to it. So, you know, the libertarian view of of abortion really stems from the question of human rights. And of course, libertarianism bases human rights in um, the property ownership that we have in, in ourselves. So self-ownership. And uh, in order to have self-ownership, there are only two requirements. You must, one, be human, and two, you must be in possession of your, uh, of your own body. Um, and, of course, I make the argument that uh, the zygote from, the, from uh, the moment conception is complete is a self-owner and therefore a rights-bearing individual. Um, and then, of course, the other piece of uh, libertarianism is the non-aggression principle, we um, are not allowed to initiate uh, violence against another person or their property. And um, I argue that abortion is an act of violence, uh, an initiation of violence against the fetus. And so um, it's impermissible to, to uh, allow abortion in a libertarian society. I had to find my unmute button there. Sorry. That's <laughs> all right. Um, yeah. So um, you've said before, and and, and this we can kind of like build build your argument as we go along here. Um, something you said in your debate with Walter that 
I, it sounds right to me, but I kind of want to give you a chance to maybe flesh it out more. Is mm-hmm. the uh, you say that when we absolutize fetal rights, we absolutize women rights, or I think the way you because you you guys had like the little contention like, well, we don't like group rights, so then we you rephrased it to be like, no. So when we absolute <laughs> absolutize the rights of uh, of fetuses, we absolutize the rights of women. So could you go into a little bit more of of, of sort of what that means? Right. Well. Um, if human rights are founded in, uh, our humanity or founded in our self-ownership, there has to be a beginning to that because we all have a beginning. So the question is, what's the beginning now? What's interesting about the phrase women's rights. I mean, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the term women's rights? Abortion. Abortion. Yeah. Abortion. (laughs) Um, and so we don't. It's like we don't have a concept of women's rights apart from from uh, abortion, uh, when in reality we, you know, women have women have many of the same rights that that men have. We have a right to bodily autonomy. We have a right to agency. Um, we have a right to make you know decisions about our own lives. And we even have, you know, rights concerning reproduction, whether we want to use our bodies for that purpose or not. Um, So the problem is, is we have to establish when they start. And so if we leave that question ambiguous, which libertarians have notoriously wanted to leave ambiguous, and I think... mm, in part because they don't, they haven't really known how to answer that question, but also in part to uh, just grow the movement, maybe even grow the party and and uh, allow for a bigger tent uh, so that they can get their message heard. They've been very ambivalent on, on when exactly these rights start. Um, and so there's been this internal debate within libertarianism as to whether um, libertarianism supports a woman's right to have an abortion or whether libertarianism supports fetal rights. So, um, but that leaves everything ambiguous, right? And Murray Rothbard said that the whole point in using property rights uh, was to disambiguate the issue. Um, and if we can disambiguate the issue, then we can actually absolutize rights. Um, and of course, they're not they're not absolute in such a way that, you know, you can violate the rights of others. Obviously, there are limitations on our on our rights um, where we can't actually use them to to violate somebody else's rights. But they have a starting point because we have a starting point and we should be able to figure that out. So um, at any rate, if we can if we can establish when human rights begin, then we can very clearly see uh, what. Uh, what rights women have when it comes to reproduction? Heck, what rights men have when it comes to reproduction? That's that's a question that is also sort of left out there hanging. Um, what rights do children have? I mean, I'm you know just born. So it extends children. to more than just women. It's just like if we don't yeah. have, if we can't have that clear foundation of when we st- like, like when personhood and life begins, and then where rights begin. And where they come from, then we we you know we're on murky ground for establishing rights for men, women, children, anyone, right. uh, even after birth. Is what is that basically what you're saying? 
essentially although i i emphasize that i don't make a personhood argument right so i don't yeah i don't i don't equate self-ownership with personhood personhood for those who are unfamiliar with it is a philosophical debate um and it was actually a point brought up by a philosopher named by the name of marianne warren who was trying to make a pro-choice argument Um, And so she's the one who came up with the personhood argument and she sort of arbitrarily picked uh, something like six or six, seven or eight, something like that characteristics of, of personhood. It was rather arbitrary. Um, And one of the major criticisms against her was that um, it actually excluded certain born humans from, from personhood as well. Yeah. So um, I'm very careful to draw that distinct, that distinction and say self-ownership is not personhood. It's not the same thing. Self-ownership is the condition necessary to establish whether there's a rights-bearing individual. Um, And so if we can do that, we can actually clear up a lot of these issues um, concerning rights of reproduction, concerning uh, rights as it relates to sexual assault, sexual crimes against, you know, children. Um, A lot of these issues that we're dealing with in our culture today that our current system really hasn't been able to deal with very well. Sure. Um, one of the things I noticed, and I guess I wanted to, to 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 ask and talk about too. You know, the the basis of your argument um, very often seemed to be stemming from, um, you know, re- emphasizing the part of libertarianism that sometimes certain libertarians don't want to talk about, which is the aspect of personal responsibility um, b- being paramount, um, and, and the idea that if we're going to maximize women's uh, autonomy. Um, and like equality under the law um, and equality with men, then because often the way that the pro-choice argument will go is like, well, women can't be equal to men unless they have the right to abortion because they don't have right. that that same reproductive freedom is, is the way that they would phrase it. And the way you've put it is that if women, um, if, if, if abortion is normalized, then this actually um, is, I, I don't know, it, the way I've interpreted it, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is almost that it's degrading or devaluing to women because it takes away women's agency and responsibility in terms of accepting natural consequences and their ability to, I guess, do what's right. Can you expound upon that, maybe clarify? Yeah. So if we recognize that, uh, if we recognize the rights of the fetus and that that begins from the moment conception is complete then what woman has the capacity to do well first of all she's she's a self-owner but she also owns a means of production she happens to own the ultimate means of production uh the means to create new humans um species kind of dies out if you don't you know have (laughs) if that's not like not to interrupt but like it's like that's like one of like sometimes people i think are really dismissive of that 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 like that that ownership that women have over that because like that's really important like if we don't have that like society falls apart completely it's well it's really important um and i mean not to I know, I know your argument is libertarian not 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 religious based or not entirely religious based but it's like you know as you know that i guess t- to me there's a religious component of like i mean that's 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 why as christians we have such a high view of of having families and children it's because of that importance but i would say i mean yes 
It is it is incredibly important. I think historically there has been some mistaken views about um, the about this fact that women are the ones who are capable of of producing children. You know, historically. Um, children were considered the property of, of the father, not of the mother. Um, historically, um, you know, women were, were really there just sort of as, you know, vessels to, to provide heirs for, 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 for men. And I mean, yes, in some ways that's true, but if we actually are recognizing the woman's self-ownership, right. And the fact that she is an owner of a means of production, specifically human reproduction, um, this is a position of power that she has. She has agency over her body. She gets to make decisions about her body in pregnancy, um, in uh, in labor, in delivery, in how you know how she's going to rear those children. I mean, yes, ideally she is she's consulting with with her husband. Um, but at the end of the day, she's the one who's making the decisions about her body, and she has a right to do that. And um, not just a right, but she's the best person to make those decisions. That is something that libertarians believe, is that the individual is in the best position to make um, decisions about their own body. If we actually follow that through to logical conclusion, to, to the logical conclusion with women, that means she does absolutely have bodily autonomy and, and agency. This means she's uh, she has to take in information from her environment. She has to be able to um, assume and calculate risks. She has to be able to take decisive action. And all of that involves um, dealing with the consequences of, of her choices. So... Um, you know, the, the, the feminist view right now is sort of more along the lines of women are victims of nature, right? Where, uh, inherently unequal, uh, or unequal, uh, to men, because we have to carry around the baby. Um, feminists don't see this as a, as a, uh, position of power. They see it as a position of weakness, which is ironic because that's the patriarchal view, <laughs> like they're they're just peddling what the patriarchalists say, which are that women are are uh, are in a weaker position. Another now, example she, of horse uh, horseshoe theory, almost. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, she's definitely she's definitely vulnerable when she's or more vulnerable when she's pregnant and when she has young children, which is um, one of the reasons why it's best to you know uh, have children in the context of marriage. Um, but that doesn't make her weak. Um, it, it, it means that this is, you know, this is a, a cooperative uh, experience, but we also don't take away her agency in, in the whole situation. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, there, there's definitely a, a framing from the, the pro-choice side and feminist side broadly that, yeah, it's very, uh, and this, this this goes beyond just even feminism. It, it's just uh, everything is construed in these victim sort of narratives, which seems to be very, you know, that they often, and it's weird, like they'll construe themselves as, as being humanistic while having such a low view of, of, of humans and responsibility and, and sort of like, you know, we're just, we're just these helpless creatures that can't like we don't have any agency in anything we do. We're just helpless to, and it's like right. and, and 
you know, it's it, it, that that really rears its head in this topic. I think, like like you like you mentioned. Yeah, well, and you know, modern feminist theory. <laughs> Modern fem- feminist theory is a is a giant mess, and if anybody's interested in my take on feminism, you can go uh, to my podcast, Dare to Think, and uh, I believe it's episode nineteen. What is feminism in simple terms? I actually explain what it is, um, <clears throat> what it's not, why it's a huge problem. But um, one of the popular strains of feminism today is actually based in something called standpoint theory. And standpoint theory is the is what is driving uh, critical race theory and wokeism and uh, and all of that, which is why you see these parallels with victimhood and the uh, oppress oppressor oppressed paradigm, right? Yeah. Um, except in this case, women are oppressed by nature, <laughs> and so we need the state to correct that. I don't know why. I really don't know why that's appealing, uh, why that that view is appealing to women, because that means you are perpetually at the mercy of the state. Um, that means you have no independence as a woman. You have no power as a woman um, if you are uh, inherently oppressed by nature. Um, but if we turn it around and we see that this is actually a position of power, that, um, you know, that women actually um you know, her, her choices, even in choosing a mate are very, very important. Yes. Um, you know, it's the, these are all, isn't there a statistic? Like you have twice as many female ancestors than male ancestors or something along those lines, kind of something along those lines. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another interesting little, little, uh, point is that, um, women are the primary consumers in the economy. Um, we're the ones who are, we're the ones who are making the purchases, even when it comes to, um, products that are designed for men, they're marketed towards women. And there's a reason for that. It's because women are, uh, they, they are either, uh, in the position of, of actually mothering and managing, a, a, a household, or they are preparing for that. Um, or they are, uh, searching for a mate uh, with that in mind, or they are actively trying to uh, prevent that from happening. Um, but every stage of a woman, woman's life is actually informing her choices in the market. And that's where we have this, this ability to actually regulate the market through through our choices and through our responses to the market. Yeah. And I, I guess like the... Uh, the it's one thing for non-libertarians to maybe have a conception of freedom that's sort of more based in a sort of positive rights uh, framework where freedom comes from the state giving us things. But you, you would think libertarians would, would understand that's not what freedom comes from. And freedom does have to be sourced in sort of that uh, personal responsibility and the the maximal acceptance of responsibility and, and realizing all the different choices that you have in all those different um, stages of life, like you, like you mentioned, uh, which is something that like, you know, pro-choice libertarians can often be good on having that mindset in other topics. But then when abortion comes up, it seemingly flies out the window. Well, I would, I would say that philosophical libertarians, I think are pretty good on uh, the personal responsibility aspect. They do shy away from um, positive rights. And I think, 
uh, with good reason, because the the concept of positive rights is that the state gives them to you, right? Yeah. Um, and I do make an argument that uh, the fetus has um, a proprietary interest in the mother, meaning that she has a positive obligation to provide uh, food and shelter to to her offspring, but that's that's a natural obligation that's founded in nature. Um, right. And if I'm if I'm right about that, it's actually the reason why the state can't create positive rights. Right. Uh, um, so the other thing that I would say about pro-choice libertarians, because I don't want to dismiss them out of hand, their um, their concerns and criticisms about how. Uh, conventional pro-lifers intend to enforce abortion prohibition, I think are valid and we should pay attention to them. You know, um, I'm currently working on an article to talk about the black market uh, for abortion services that are that's going to result if Roe v. Wade is, is overturned. Uh, the infrastructure is already there. Um, and uh, w- one of the reasons why it will be so difficult to enforce is because um, abortion, especially in the in the early stages, looks just like a miscarriage. Like if you're on the outside and you don't know if the woman yeah. has consumed something in order to induce abortion, all it looks like is a miscarriage. In fact, there one of the articles that um, I'm uh, referencing from, there was a doctor that even said, "Hey, if if you know if you take." this abortion pill or you take these these herbs to induce abortion and you start having problems, you know, you start uh, hemorrhaging, you go to the hospital and you just say, I just started bleeding. I don't know why. Um, so they're actually, they're, they're, uh, they know that they can get away with this because it looks just like a miscarriage. Well, what are conventional pro-lifers going to do? Hold all miscarriages suspect? Right. Like that, yeah. that would be a terrible idea. So pro-choice libertarians are right to to as if we don't concerns. already have a massive violation of privacy. <laughs> oh. oh, my gosh. Uh, it was uh, it was Scott Klusendorf of the Pro-Life Training Institute who said that a war on abortion would look the, like the war on drugs. And he was not kidding. That was not hyperbole. And um, as far as pro-life libertarians are concerned, certainly pro-choice libertarians, we should all be standing up saying, no, not at all. That's that's not acceptable. Pro-life libertarians can maintain that abortion should be illegal while also maintaining that we need to have a just system and not just this authoritarian police state free for all. Sure. Um, you kind of gone into it a bit already, but if we, you know, maybe some, if you have any other thing you want to add, you know, what are, what are, you know, some of the things that pro-lifers and maybe even pro-life libertarians often get wrong that you think that, that, that we could do better at in this, in this conversation? Well, I'd say, um, you know, there's a lot of pro-life libertarians who, uh, appreciate what I've said and appreciate my position. And so I don't want to say that this is true of all pro-life libertarians, but if I get any criticism from them whatsoever, it's on this issue of enforcement. I'm, right. I oppose authoritarian enforcement. I oppose a uh, war on abortion uh, uh, sort of policy. Um, I even really oppose imprisonment and, and you know, a, a more punitive um, enforcement because it doesn't work. 
<laughs> you know, we look at, at the criminal system now for violent crimes, for murder, for theft, um, those sorts of things. And our system is designed or intended, I shouldn't say designed, it's intended to produce deterrence, but it doesn't. It's intended to reduce recidivism, but it doesn't. Um, and so I'm very adamant that that I don't believe that those are good ways to enforce abor abortion prohibition. And I get pushback on that. And I think, I don't know if this is true, but my impression is that some pro-life libertarians are do sort of fit into that caricature that they are just disenchanted Republicans who are trying to find another an, a, another route for um, you know for for their conventional pro-life paradigm. Um, and I think that a pro-life libertarianism is distinctly and uniquely different from a conventional pro-life perspective. And um, I do really hope that pro-life libertarians start um, really start grasping that idea and coming to understand that it is significantly different from the conventional view. Yeah, definitely. I've seen pro-life conservatives, Christians, and and yeah, even um, some libertarians have a a uh, a very vengeful outlook on uh, on this topic. Which mm -hmm. which on one hand, I I even sometimes find myself falling into because sometimes when you're, especially if you're on Twitter, because Twitter's the worst place to be to have this conversation. Um, yeah. But if you're on Twitter, um, or I've encountered this in real life sometimes too, and and certain pro-choicers um, will make arguments that just make your jaw drop, and you're just like, how can anybody have such a, you know, depraved outlook on on this topic and advocate for such you know such horrific uh ideas or or actions towards you know the most vulnerable and and i think where it stems from is a lot of us have this i know i have a very strong inner sense of of justice um i got into fights when i was in high school um always because i was defending somebody who was getting bullied and mm -hmm. I, i've always had that desire to defend those who can't defend themselves and sometimes that meant if if there was a bully i'd hit the you know go punch the bully in the nose so he you know would think twice about bullying again and i think there's some some merit to 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 sometimes uh having some sort of an aggression uh, an aggression response to certain acts of aggression i'm not saying that, that there's never a place for that um right. but but i do think at the same time that this topic as you've alluded to um comes with a lot of complications like one of the things you've pointed out is i mean there is nobody in a better position to uh to advocate for the 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 baby or, or the fetus than the woman so mm -hmm. enforcement that would be targeted at women would be seemingly counterproductive to trying to disincentive disincentive disincentives of abortion <laughs> yeah can't get that word out um uh and then uh but this can get sometimes so there, there's this gets into like a lot of different topics and it's like there, there's the libertarian views on justice and then there's also a lot of pro-lifers are christians and this gets into varying christian views on on enforcement and justice um and i know you've talked a lot about the idea of sort of like a, a more restorative view 
of of justice, which I, I, I guess would that be both libertarian and and Christian? Um, you know, where, like where they kind of meet, or uh, I don't. Know, I guess I guess go into that a little bit. Yeah. So um, I um, first of all, I'm strictly speaking, I'm I I am an anarchist, and so. Um, you know, in an anarchist society, you have what's known as a polycentric legal order. So how exactly enforcement would work out is really going to be dependent upon how it arises uh, in the marketplace. But um, I am an advocate of restorative justice um, for uh, dealing with abortive women. Um, the way this works and uh, I think I've recommended it on here before. I recommend it again. The documentary called How to Love Your Neighbor. Um, it is produced by uh, Free the People, which is Matt Kibbe and uh, his his wife, Terry Kibbe's uh, organization. Actually, technically, I found out it's Terry Kibbe's organization and Matt Kibbe is the face of it. Um, <laughs> but um, at any rate, that documentary is absolutely excellent in explaining how restorative justice works. Um, it's actually been used in Longmont, Colorado for um, over, I, I believe, 25 years, over two decades. And um, they have, basically the way it works is um, instead of, and this works for at least on a practical level in Longmont, uh, Colorado. It works for most situations, maybe not all. Um, it wouldn't work, for example, with abusive relationships that would have to be handled differently. Um, but the way it works is instead of having an offender, you have a responsible party. Uh, you do have uh, the victim. Um, but the idea with it is the victim actually has a voice. The victim um, uh, or somebody who's acting on the victim's behalf is able to sit down with uh, uh, with a, a group of a small group of people from the community. They're able to uh, talk to the responsible party face to face, convey to the responsible party what the harm was, why it was harmful, how it actually affected them, and it becomes a, a learning experience um, for the responsible party. Um, and then the responsible party has an opportunity to actually participate in the, uh, in the process of restitution. Um, and this is a process where the, uh, the community, uh, I, I keep using that word, but it's really just a, a small group of, of volunteers who um, participate in helping that person see how they can use their own strengths to um, to bring restitution to the situation. And that can be in any number of ways. It's a very creative process. Um, the idea here is, is that it promotes taking responsibility for your actions, which is very libertarian. It's very Christian. Um, it gives the victim a voice um, and it doesn't ruin people's lives, right? This doesn't go on people's records. Um, they're not prevented from being able to um, participate in society after this, you know, that they, they're not prevented from getting jobs or, you know, uh, develop, you know, going through a personal development so that they can actually grow from, from that situation and, and not repeat that, that, uh, uh, that offense again. And so they've had 
great success, great success with, it creates um, incredibly low recidivism rates, um, which actually result in just people, it's not really a true deterrence, but people, you know, are actively choosing not to commit these, these crimes again. Um, and I think it's perfect in the situation of an abortive women, an abortive woman, because, um, there are two primary reasons why women seek abortions, poverty and abusive relationships or bad relationships. This is an, an opportunity for her. If she's in poverty, it's an opportunity for her to actually, um, get some help to get her out of poverty, right? Um, if she's in an, in an abusive relationship, maybe she can actually get help to get out of the abusive relationship. Like we're not leaving people hanging uh, when we right. use this restorative justice model. Um, so I'm a big fan of that. I do think that the other piece um, that can be used is uh, is tort law. Um, this is the idea that, you know, you you take somebody to court and they owe you some some dollar amount for uh, for the the offense that they've committed against you. I think that that's um, more appropriate um, in situations maybe where there's you know mens rea on the part of of the woman. She's you know intentionally cre- uh, committed a, a crime here, and so I think you know paying a dollar amount of restitution is is um, is valid. Um, it's certainly appropriate for providers, people who mm-hmm. are, um, you know, providing these services, they know better than that. Um, and the interesting thing about tort is it does produce a deterrence. When you know the cost of the crime, uh, you can actually take that into consideration when when you're thinking about doing the crime. And so tort law actually produces deterrence. And that's something that our current system is, is lacking significantly. Um, I do want to touch on the Christian aspect of this because, and I'm going to pull up my notes, so pardon me, I will be reading a little bit from what I've got here because I'm going to be quoting scripture. Yeah, that's good because it's like I can make really good cogent arguments for like the libertarian art, like support of, of your theory of restorative justice because it just, mm-hmm. it makes sense. But yeah, yeah, there's a lot of pushback from the Christian, from some of the Christian pro-lifers on it. So yeah, um, so yeah go ahead. So if we understand that Romans 13 is is prescriptive for civil governance, right? Not descriptive. We've had you've had this conversation with When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Gregory Baus. Um, then Romans, thir- uh, Romans 12 provides some context for, uh, for, for how we're supposed to conduct uh, civil governance. 
And so uh, some, some passages that I pulled from Romans 12, first of all, verse two, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by mm. testing, you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then when we jump down to verses 16 through 17 uh, and uh, also 18 through 21, that reads, live in harmony, in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's mm. the final verse before we get into Romans 13. Right. Um, and I think, you know, the world's idea of justice is vengeance. Um, that's not the Christian view of justice. There's um, there's another passage in John 8 when, where, uh, when the uh, scribes and the Pharisees bring the woman caught in adultery to, to Jesus. Um, and you know, this is, <laughs> this is right along, uh, right along the lines of, um, the complaints that conservative Christians have against women who seek abortions is it's often associated with sexual sin, right? Adultery, um, in, in its many forms and, and that sort of thing. So the scribes and the Pharisees, bring this woman before Jesus who is at the temple teaching, uh, you know, a crowd of people. And they say to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such, such women. So what do you say? This, they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. That is Jesus. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to, said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, women, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. Excuse me, the light of life. Um, so vengeance is not Christian. And it, it, it's not. And it's not like this woman got off the hook. This happened in front of a crowd of people. That crowd of people then figured out if they didn't know already that that woman was an adulterer. Um, but she wasn't given punitive action, right? The punitive action that the, that the law required was stoning. Right. And, you know, uh, Romans 12 is saying um, of your enemy, uh, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Um, and what you find with, with Jesus and this woman is 
yeah, there, there's none of that. There, uh, there, there's no punitive action taken against her. Now, he tells her, "You're not, con- you know, I'm not condemning you. Go and sin no more." Um, that's that's the the recidivism that that we would use in 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 the legal sense of the term and the theological sense of the term. That's repentance, right? But the idea is, is don't repeat this offense. Um. <sighs> You know, it's very easy for Christians to get morally outraged at abortion, and I understand why abortion is morally outrageous. <laughs> um, but moral outrage is not justice. It's not a substitute for justice. It's not right. compa- it's not compassion, and it's not a substitute for compassion. Um, so we cannot say that, you know. Uh, throwing her in prison or giving her the death penalty or, you know, taking this um, tough on crime approach to abortion, which has utterly failed as a policy with other crimes, taking that approach with with women and abortion is just, it's inviting injustice. And Christians have to be concerned with that, especially given what scripture says about what a Christian uh, mode of, of justice actually looks like. Um, so, you know, uh, I would say that, that that's my, that's my, my Christian defense of, of right. restorative justice and tort law. No, I, I, I agree with everything you said. And it's, um, yeah, I, I was actually just talking about this in, in my last, no, two episodes ago. Um, uh, the way I put it was that like, you know, Christian governance is foreign to the world's governance. Um, you know, it's, it's not based in, um, and, and yeah, I mean, Romans, you know, contrary to how some people read the Bible, like, you know, you're supposed to kind of read the, the whole book and, you know, chapter by chapter, not act like Romans 13 is just this weird, you know, book onto itself that doesn't have anything before or after it. Right. Um, um, so, so yeah, there's, um, there, there's something there, there, there's something and it, it, it's tough uh because like it's easy for some pro-life uh christians to sort of like in a weird way they're doing like the equivalent of what sometimes you see people on the left do when they kind of like clutch their pearls and sort of like like uh are you are you condoning or are you not like you know as morally outraged as me you don't you don't see this for how evil it is and it's like well mm-hmm. no i I, I see it for how evil it is and I'm not any less angry about it, but it's like, I mean, for one, I mean, the, the penalty of sin is death. So like, you know, the fact that we are all still here shows an incredible amount of, of love and mercy that God just gives us. So like, if I'm right. going to start, if I'm going to start from that foundation and then view everyone else. It's like, you know, to me, there's almost, uh, an idolatrous nature to 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 wanting to take vengeance against people because i mean as it says mm. in romans 12 like vengeance belongs to god if mm-hmm. you're going to take that from god well you know all, you know only god is capable of delivering vengeance in a way that is righteous and holy when we do it it's distorted it's it's sinful well and by leaving our vengeance to god that allows God to work in the lives of, of people and bring them to repentance. Romans 2, right. 4, Romans 2, 4 says that the way that God brings us to repentance is through his loving kindness. 
It's not from beating people over the head with the Bible. It's not from, um, you know, trying to uh, coerce a, 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 a facade of a Christian culture where everybody's just going through the motions, but you have no changed hearts. Um, you know, whatever, however it is that, that we feel slighted and, you know, I, I, I don't want to, um, necessarily endorse pacifism because I don't see myself as a pacifist, but there are aspects to ultimate justice that are outside of our control. Yeah. Um, and so what we do have control over, we should be paying attention to, well, what's actually effective? What is, um, what is the reflection of, you know, what is, at least as far as Christians are concerned, what is reflective of what God expects of us, um, from these passages. And I think restorative justice is, is much more aligned with that. Um, I will say for those who, you know, maybe are a little bit uncomfortable with this, with this take, um, and still want to see or still believe that the that the state has a punitive role. My question for them is, what is the goal in ending abortion? Is it just to prosecute women, or is it to actually end the practice of a, of abortion? Is it actually to save lives? If it's to save lives then we do what's effective, not what's expedient, not what's what's popular, not what we've done traditionally. We do what's effective. And what's effective isn't even the model that we have right now. Yeah. What what's effective is is restorative justice and tort law. Yeah. No, I mean, and if the idea is to make the war on abortion like the war on drugs, then what we will have is something that is not effective and that only yeah. seeks to create more victims, which doesn't seem to be helpful. It, and if it, and if yeah. the only the only victory you gain there is you can sit on a moral high ground in a in a sort of like sort of like high and mighty way and be like, ha, we got it. We banned abortion. You can't do it anymore. It's like, yeah, but 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 they can. And like you yeah. said, I forget where you said this before. I don't know if it was on my show or your show or, or, or in the debate, but you, but it, something that stuck with me is you said at the end of the day, the person who has the most power to stop the abortion is the mother. Right. Because like they're the ones that are going to be looking themselves in the mirror, holding that abortion pill in their hand. Exactly. We either empower them to make the right decision right. or we put all this fluff around it that make, and, and all this, uh, this persecution and 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 hateful uh rhetoric out there and stuff that just makes it uh, more likely that they're going to you know like just do it behind closed doors and is that any better uh, you know what i mean like you said if the goal is to if if being pro-life means saving lives then yeah we should do what saves lives right well yeah and um what I what I've said in the past is the one person standing between the fetus and the rest of the world is the woman and yeah. she matters. And if we don't factor her in her bodily autonomy and agency into the equation um, and we just say the state needs to handle this, um, you know, we we learned this during the pandemic when the object of state interest exists inside of you, you suddenly disappear your rights don't matter anymore. The The pandemic should be a wake-up call to pro-lifers that that's how they would handle abortion uh, enforcement of, of abortion prohibition. The woman would disappear and we don't, she can't disappear. 
um, especially if we want to save lives, we have to see her. We have to see her. We have to see her bodily autonomy. We have to see her agency and we have to see uh, what it actually takes for her to make a life affirming choice. And that we have studies that actually show us that when she feels like her most basic needs are, are met, she will choose life and not abortion. Yeah. Um, and in a libertarian perspective, where does that come from? That comes from a market and from, from the free market. Yep. So, so in light of all this, you know, we have the the reports that Roe versus Wade has, you know, so a majority uh, draft or something as far as the the potential to uh, overturn it. Um, I, you know, I, I'm still kind of in that mindset of like, I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not holding. Too. I'm not really me holding too. my breath because it's holding just my breath. Yeah, uh, but like you know, if if Roe was to be appealed either now or down the road or something, um, you know, it, w- would that be good, good or bad? I mean, I, I lean towards good, but I think it's a mixture. Um, and and then what what do we do in the here and now? Like, obviously, um, the state has, while it exists, I guess it, it's going to play a role, whether we like it or not. And mm-hmm. so what should we be doing as Christians and libertarians if Roe is appealed, or even if it isn't, like, like, what can we be doing in terms of trying to promote better? I, I don't know. Is there a way we can, uh, if because I, I don't want to make you know perfect the the enemy of the good. Obviously, right. we're both anarchists. We would prefer to see a you know full private law polycentric uh, uh, legal society exist. Uh, we're not there yet. We're not close. Uh, so what can we be doing in the meantime with the, you know, kind of awful state state government mechanisms we have to at least, I don't know, make the situation better, um, if anything. Okay. So two, two parts to that question. First of all, is it good that Roe, that Roe v. Wade be overturned? The answer is emphatically yes. Um, it, it needs to be overturned and not just because it permits abortion, which it does. Um, and that's obviously bad. Um, but it also subjugates a woman's liberty interest in pregnancy to state interest. Um, I've been trying to point this out to pro-choicers and, uh, and, and libertarians that Roe v. Wade is bad for women even if you're going to take the bodily autonomy argument, right? That or not the bodily auto- autonomy argument, the pro-choice argument, um, because it subjects a woman's um, decisions in pregnancy to state interest. If the state is interested in um, forcing her to have so many al- ultrasounds, or forcing her to have you know certain vaccinations, or forcing her to uh, eat a particular diet. Um, or forcing her to have a certain number of ch- children, or saying you can only have one child—that um, all—that all falls under the purview of Roe v. Wade. So, absolutely, Roe v. Wade should be overturned. It's bad for babies. It's bad for women. Um, it's bad for federalism. <laughs> like it's bad. It's it, it, it's terrible. It needs to be overturned. I hope it. I hope that it does. I'm skeptical that it will. Um, but yes, absolutely. It needs to be overturned as far as what do we do next, right? There are, 
um, expected to be 26 states that will um, uh, that will have abortion bans. Um, some of them will be total, as in you can you can never seek abortion. Some of them, from what I understand, uh, will be bans that begin from six weeks onward um, or eight weeks in the case of I forget which state, but there's one state that has an eight week ban. Um, so there's 26 states where abortion is going to be uh, totally banned or effectively banned. Uh, um, and then you have, you know, whatever other number of states, I can't do math in my head on the spur of the moment, but then you have a, some other number of states that will likely just uh, allow abortion on demand. The way their their laws are written right now are very lenient. There are very few restrictions um, as it exists now. Um, in those states where abortion will be banned, libertarians, both pro-life and pro-choice, should actively work for criminal justice reform. Um, they should actively pursue, if you have not seen the documentary, How to Love Your Enemies, uh, please go watch it. Um, they are, uh, I actually got to meet Matt Kibbe, uh, Matt and Terry Kibbe when they came through uh, Albuquerque and, and got to speak to them and speak to some of the creators of the documentary. They are actively working across the United States to get restorative justice as an option um, with, uh, uh, with district attorney's offices and, and things like that. And we actually had, um, in that audience, uh, we had a number of, um, public defenders who were in that audience, um, who were very, very, very interested. They weren't even libertarian. Um, and actually when they found out who was, who was putting on the the event, um, they were even a little skeptical. They were like, oh, we don't want to be associated with them. But they went anyway, and they were very, they were very, very inspired. So um, we can actively pursue getting restorative justice um, implemented in our own towns um, and, and, you know, used as a response to these bans as opposed to what some of these laws, not all of these laws are like this, but I do know that some of the laws are written in such a way that abortion will be declared first degree murder. And in those, um, in those states where the death penalty is permitted, that will be an option. Those states, I think we should actively as libertarians actively, um, seek out criminal justice reform and work to use, uh, restorative justice in those states. The other thing that we can do is, um, advocate for a deregulation of the market. Uh, we absolutely need to roll roll back regulations, free up the market, um, uh, advocate for sound currency, including Bitcoin and, and all of that. Inflation makes motherhood more expensive, guys. <laughs> oh, the Bitcoin um, crashed, so it's worthless now. I love the. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no. It's it's on sale for a discount. Go buy right. It. <laughs> Um, so yeah, those are the things that we do now and we do them in the States where, um, where abortion has been banned because that's where you're, that's where the black market is going to start, uh, cropping up. In fact, <clears throat> the black market's going to be hidden in plain sight. Um, there's already plans for, 
um, for abortion ad- activists from states where it's legal to train and teach women how to self-manage their own abortion and do this uh, a do-it-yourself abortion. They've they've been and they've been preparing for this. The infrastructure. Well, wasn't there also the, uh, the the post where they were saying you can take like ivermectin to induce an it, abortion or something? Yeah, it wasn't <laughs> ivermectin. It's, or it was um, something like that. It yeah, was like another horse medication m- or mis- yeah. misopristol is the um, second regimen in a medical abortion. Its um, its action is to actually induce uh, uh, labor and expel the fetus. And yeah, you can. You can get it um, from veterinary, you know, veterinarian services. Um, people from Mexico are bringing it, bringing it over. There are um, international communities that have made mail order an option. Um, and so, you know, the conventional pro-lifers may see a decrease in documented abortion. That should not be taken as a win. It just right. means they're not being documented. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, it's very important if you have a heart for um, for protecting life, um, if you have a heart for the, the mother and what she's experiencing, um, then there are options for providing help, uh, help for her. Also, crisis pregnancy centers. I can't emph- emphasize that enough. Crisis pregnancy centers outnumber the the, the number of abortion clinics in America, um, and they are the 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 least politicized strain of the pro-life movement. They are not there for politics. They are there for helping women. They provide wonderful services. Um, so you can, you can help out with that. Um, so those are a few things that you can do, but don't, <laughs> don't be foolish enough to think that, that overturning Roe means saving lives. Cause that's, uh, that's not, that's, that's not how it works. Yep. Um, all right. So I guess we can do, uh, questions now from the Great. comment section. So I'll scroll up to the top. Uh, looks like the first question was, what will abortion laws look like in the U.S. in five years? So we're going to get out our crystal balls and try to <laughs> future cast this. <laughs> what, what are your thoughts on that, if you had any? Well, I don't know, to be honest with you. It, it's it's really going to depend on implementation, how an implementation looks with with these states. Assuming Roe v. Wade gets overturned which that decision is expected to come out in June. Um, There's going to be implementation. Um, I imagine that that implementation will start out relatively slow and not, uh, you know, in your face sort of drug war kind of thing. Um, What they're going to discover is this black market. Right. Um, and these these activists who will be able to use the Internet, you know, blogs, podcasts, um, you know, telling giving instructions over the air. One of the one of the resources that I'm using for my articles uh, is an Atlantic, a piece from the Atlantic. And she describes in detail how to uh, how to do a number of these things um, unless conservative pro-lifers are going to start adopting the, um, you know, the, the censorship policies of the left, they're going to realize that they have an enforcement issue. Um, and they will either become more draconian, which is likely, 
um, or they'll they'll back off and and have to rewrite their laws. Um, other uh, otherwise, they they risk becoming just you know unenforceable and nobody pays pays attention to them, right? So you know what what will they look like in five years? It's really hard to say. Um, I don't imagine that you'll have much of a difference. Um, in terms of number of states that that have banned, I don't think that you'll get an increase in that number. I think that the states, the states that are banning now, already have heavy restrictions on the abortion industry. They're already very, very pro-life and 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 have been for decades. Um, and so it's really not, you're really not getting a, a significant change with the overturn of Roe. I'm not sure that there will be much of a difference in five years. Okay. Um, next question from Benjamin, uh, was thoughts on SLED, which I didn't know what that was. And he clarified it was arguing against abortion by showing how those factors don't make the little one any less of a baby. So it stands for size, level of development, environment, and dependency. Ah, yes. Um, this is, uh, this is an, an argument, um, that essentially, is trying to say, look, we don't um, deny rights on the basis of, of size, development, environment, dependency, those sorts of things. So for example, um, we don't deny rights or reduce the number of rights for people with dwarfism because they're smaller, right? right? We don't um, reduce the number of rights for somebody who, um, well, for, for a child, right? Who's in the process of human development. We don't reduce rights for um, those people with developmental disabilities who are, who are adults. We don't, um, we don't deny rights because somebody, or we shouldn't deny rights um, to somebody because, you know, they, they live in a one bedroom apartment as opposed to a, you know, three bedroom home. Um, uh, we don't deny rights on the basis that one person uh, has some kind of dependency on on another, you know, maybe for welfare or like, a, you know, an, an adult with um, uh, developmental disabilities is is under the the care of their parents for much longer than is typical. We're, we don't deny rights on those bases. And so why would we apply any of those to the fetus? Right. It's smaller. It's less developed. Uh, it's, it's environment is inside the mother. Uh, um, it's dependent upon the, the, the mother. None of those arguments work for born persons. And so they don't work for an unborn, uh, fetus. Yeah, the, the only, the only argument that I've heard that is a little bit trickier to get around, but I think your point about sort of like, uh, assuming natural consequences and responsibility sort of res- takes care of this, but on dependency, the idea that like well it's it's it is uh not so, like people shouldn't have a uh positive obligation to like uh if somebody had to be dependent upon your internal organs like you had to hook up to them for like dialysis or or something like that like you shouldn't be forced into that situation which like well yeah no one would you know i would agree like yeah you can't force somebody to do that like to, to a random person on the street mm-hmm. but but uh you know, my, my thoughts are the difference when it's with a fetus is that uh, th- these were natural processes that right. the woman was involved in that created the fetus inside of her. And so uh, kind of like you put it, there's a, there's a natural biological obligation there. 
Yeah, um, Benjamin um, might want to take a look at um, my website. You can find most, I'm, I'm in the process of redesigning my website. Uh, you can find most of uh, my work on abortion. If you go to mirrorliberty.com slash abortion, uh, I have an episode where uh, it's titled um, Against the Christian Feminist View of Abortion, which really is an, is an argument against safe, legal, and rare. And I dismantle this idea that we uh, assign rights on the basis of, of particular characteristics, which is where you know this, this SLED acronym comes into play. Um, there's also uh, one or two articles um, where... Uh, where I reference Judith Jarvis Thompson's thought experiment, which is this, you know, being hooked up to, you know, to, uh, uh, to somebody for like kidney dialysis or something like that. Not quite exactly that, but um, that's that, that dependency argument. So I address that argument directly in um, two of the articles that are listed there. I forget exactly what the titles are. One of them is a response to Matt Walsh on, on bodily autonomy, um, I think the other one is called Libertarianism Changes the Abortion Debate. So you can go check those out and and see how I deal with those directly. Cool. Uh, next question is uh, from David Brady from The, the Road to Providence. Uh, he asks, uh, how do you address people who claim that you cannot define when life begins without a religious argument? With science. <laughs> um i i uh i i i use the science of embryology to make my case um and that will be spelled out in in the paper that that i write on this the formal paper um i will say you know one of the reasons why i talk about um uh self-ownership beginning when conception is complete is because we've actually learned science has learned that conception takes uh, is a process that takes three days. Um, and that's very important because during those three days is something called a maternal zygotic transition, where the instructions that the cell is receiving um, change from, uh, from mother to zygote so that at the end of that process of conception, the zygote is um, completely uh, autonomous as far as its its development is concerned. All of the the work of, of development is is baby. Um, mom's pretty passive in in all of that. The uh, the placenta and the umbilical cord are created by baby and we know that because it has baby's DNA and not mom's DNA. Um, it's actually, um, even though I don't argue that the, uh, that the zygote or the fetus is a, is a human action, uh, human actor taking human action. Um, it's actually, uh, identical. This whole process is identical to the homesteading principle, which is pretty amazing. Um, so yeah, when people say you can't define when life begins without a religious argument, nobody has, uh, not even the conventional pro-lifers, although they, I would say, don't quite under understand the science either. They want to start with fertilization. I start with the end of conception. Um, but yeah, the science is clear and and we've known about it for decades. So because of that, 
because you say like, you know, like, like you said, it's a three day process and, and mm-hmm. all that, you know, what, what are your, your personal thoughts um, on like the, the day after pill? And, and oh, I, I even yeah. sometimes I'm a little confused on that because sometimes like every time I look into it, I feel like I get different answers on what it actually does. Cause sometimes people say it prevents implantation and some people say it prevents fertilization. Some people say it can do both. It's like, I, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. So I mean, it's a little ambiguous. Yeah. No, I looked into this very specifically because what they say is that plan B is like 10 times as strong as the birth control pill. Uh, um, And the birth control, the birth control pill, hormonal contraception can act as a, as an abortifacient if it's used incorrectly. And um, I can touch on that in, in a second if, if you want, but as far as plan B is concerned, this is how it works. Plan B works by preventing ovulation. So if no egg is released, there's not an opportunity for either fertilization or conception to take place. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, there's, there's no death of a fetus there. Um, and if you take the, if you take plan B and miss ovulation so that ovulation does happen and conception does take place, it doesn't, um, uh, it doesn't act as an abortive patient. It won't kill the fetus. So as far as I'm concerned, plan B should be available to women. It should be available without a prescription. Um, it's, you know, it will have some side effects and things that women should take into account when using it. But I see absolutely no reason why a woman can't use plan B. Okay. Interesting. Um, next question. Uh where is it here? Here it is. Another one from Benjamin. Uh, how does uh, Roe v. Wade foster state meddling in women's lives? I guess some people were confused about your argument there. So I guess if we ah. uh, want to elaborate a little bit on uh, on that aspect. Yeah, I would say mostly that it sets the stage for that. It hasn't been used in that way, but the wording, and I, I wish I had it in front of me, but the wording in the majority decision um basically says that, uh, well, first of all, let me start off with this. One of the, one of the, the, the myths I would say of the conventional pro-life perspective is that, um, Roe v. Wade, um, uh, allowed abortion on the basis of privacy. That's not entirely true. Um, contraception was allowed on the basis of, of privacy, and there was an association between previable abortion and contraception. But what the court said was that um, a, uh, a woman had a liberty interest that must be protected, and that that liberty interest to previable abortion was, was what they were protecting. The thing is, is that they said um, if fetal life became more of an interest to the state than the state and the court specifically reserved the right to restrict the woman's liberty interest if they found that the the fetus's interest was was greater. Um, Now, the ramifications for that never really came to fruition, Um, but I would say um, that, I mean, you can ask uh, Jacob, you can you can probably ask your wife this. Um, there's a lot of things in conventional medicine when it comes to pregnancy where a woman doesn't really have 
a choice in the matter. Um, or she's strongly discouraged from, from not doing it. You know, ultrasounds, for example, there are some women who don't want to do ultrasounds because they might be unsafe. Um, our last two children, we have done completely, uh, like home births and all home visits because her experience is doing it through the medical, uh, you know, uh, feel the, the medical industry and hospitals the first two times yeah exactly that like there's yeah. there's like no agency at all you you don't have any any say in what you you want to do or or treatments or whatnot yeah so you know with, with my first two um and i learned this <clears throat> i learned this with my first and the only reason why i learned it is because i hired a doula and the doula said to me you should have a birthing plan um, and, uh, you should give me that birthing plan, give your husband that birthing plan, give any visit, you know, anybody, any family members who are going to be in the delivery room, that, that birthing plan. And you give your doctor that birthing plan way ahead of time. And it, this was all to ensure that they followed the birthing plan. And, but they all told me, um, you know, if they decide that they're not going to follow the birthing plan, they don't have to. So, um, <clears throat> you know, when it comes to women actually being in charge of their pregnancies right now, uh, that's not the case unless you hire a midwife who's um, much more likely. My my third, I used a, a midwife and had a home birth um, and the experience was, was much better. Um, I delivered in, in two hours with a, with a birthing pool and was recovered by the end of the day. Whereas in the hospital, I was in labor for 12 hours. I had to be induced. Um, I got nerve damage from, from one of the, uh, epidurals. Like it was a nightmare. Oh my gosh. And it was way more painful. I didn't have a, an epidural with the water birth. Um, and it was less painful, uh, and I had a quicker recovery. So yeah, I would say the way that the state has dealt with women in pregnancy, it's uh, with the assumption that women are incapable of making good decisions about their own body. Um, and so, you know, it's this command and control kind of thing, and that's already prevalent in, in the system. It's why uh, alternative um, forms of, you know, midwifery and and home birthing have become so popular is so that women have their agency back. Right. Well, that's, that's modern day feminism. Make women and men completely <laughs> helpless so the state yeah. can do everything. Exactly. <laughs> cool. Well, um, it looks like all the questions. So um, thanks, Carrie, again, for, for coming on. Um, yeah, thanks you know, for having like we, me. I feel like we were able to to dive into those topics uh, in, a, in a very satisfying way. And uh, yeah, especially the, the restorative justice stuff. I mean, that's stuff that, I mean, it, I feel like, for for this topic especially, but I think even just in in general, um, it, it's even important beyond abortion to to, mm-hmm. to to be reminding ourselves as both libertarians and Christians just that like, uh, just the state has perverted just like we've talked about before when I've had you and Greg on like how the state perverts the ideas of authority and governance. It's also distorted the ideas of justice, and exactly. we have to try to reclaim. The, yeah. the 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 true sense of those terms from both a Christian and libertarian perspective, and I, I think you did right. a good job at uh, um, uh, unpacking that. Thank you very much. Cool. Um, where can people? Uh, you plugged it again. You have your website there, but uh, if you want to give any other plugs, and if you have any other projects you're you're working on, you want to plug here before we uh, hop off. 
Yeah. So again, you can find all of my work at mirrorliberty.com. I am going through the process of redesigning the website and will be deploying that soon. Um, And uh, if you actually are inspired to um, support my work, I do have um, uh, a membership option. Um, which you can take a look at if you go to mirrorliberty.com slash membership. But of course, you can sign up for, for my newsletter for, for free and stay up to date on, on my work and all my articles. I am in the process, like I said, of writing out my formal argument um, to submit for peer review. Um, and if you are a monthly member, you get monthly updates, uh, monthly research updates, uh, which are exclusive to you. I also teach online courses in critical thinking using the Socratic method. You can find that um, on the website too. Just go to the courses tab. Um, I will be registering for for fall classes beginning in July. Um, those have been um, immensely fun. They're for uh, middle schoolers, high schoolers, and and adults. Um, it's a great, um, low stress way of learning how to critically think using the Socratic method. And we dialogue about the principles of living in a free and prosperous society. Um, and so that's, that's a ton of fun. Um, and my podcast is, is dare to think, and you can check that out on any podcatcher. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks Carrie for, for coming on and, uh, we'll, uh, have you back on sometime again soon and uh thanks everybody for watching and your questions and uh yeah until next time everybody remember don't fear the fire when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers and if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer mail checks invoices documents and everything you need to keep your business running get rates up to 89 percent off usps and ups and with the mobile app you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.